0: This is the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics.
1: We have to recognize that the most unhealthy people in our country literally live in the shadow of the most prestigious, high tech academic medical centers. Some of the biggest health disparities are present right right under the tall buildings where all of this amazing research and all of this uh, new brand new cancer care and all of this stuff takes place.
2: Urban bioethics may be a new term for you. It is a field and focus in bioethics that points a critical lens on the extreme inequalities of health and access to medical, legal and other resources that leave many urban dwellers and communities distinctly disadvantaged disenfranchised, and vulnerable. What is this focus, its scope, its lens, its challenges? Our guests today are from the Center for Urban Bioethics at Temple University in the Lewis Katz School of Medicine in Philadelphia. Nora Jones is an anthropologist, associate professor in bioethics, and associate director of the center. Nicole Strand is assistant director for research at the center, as well as assistant professor. Nicole is a lawyer and bioethicist. Providenza, or Enza Rocco, also a lawyer and a social worker, is assistant professor at the Center. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Nora, could you offer us a story that begins to offer a picture of what urban bioethics is?
3: The example that I wanted to start by sharing is an example that has a happier ending than we might have expected. And it took place in my first month at Temple University in the hospital and the health system. I was the newest person with bioethicist attached to my title, and I got called in by the hospitalist team because they were having problems with a patient. She was a 50-something-year-old woman, and she had a gangrenous foot and was refusing amputation. The doctors were clearly frustrated. And when they invited me to come, they told me about all the different ways and all the different times they had told the patient that if she kept refusing this procedure, her foot would kill her. And they thought that using as a bioethicist, I might have some luck convincing her. And I I joined the team in the hallway outside of the patient's room, and they were filling me in on what they had communicated to the patient. My first, and turns out my only question This was an incredibly rare example of a relatively easy ethics consult. My first and only question to the team was, what did she say when you asked why she didn't want the operation? Turns out that no one on the team had asked her this question. And so they were slightly embarrassed, but encouraged by this. The attending posed the question to her and her answers boiled down to, she didn't believe that the doctors at Temple Hospital would take good care of her. Years earlier, she'd been admitted for a surgery that, as she understood, was only going to be a simple fix to a problem, but woke up to find that one of her toes had been amputated. So she didn't trust us. And it was because of that conversation that they learned about this past amputation and they could apologize that that had happened to her and you know, go through procedures and ways of a sort of a more actually informed consent. They learned about other aspects of her life, that she was a grandmother who took care of her children. And one of the things that made her feel closest to her family was cooking for them. And she felt that if she had her foot amputated, she would not be able to stand in her kitchen and cook. So they brought in someone from the limb salvage center who worked with her to show her occupational therapy, how she could continue that important part of her life. And she did end up having the amputation. So I think what that story helps us to see is really what you know, we talk about with urban bioethics is that without exploring further into this patient's life, without exploring perhaps what our role was in her refusal to amputate, that's a very hard thing for us to acknowledge. I think. We are so focused on fixing and curing disease that, you know, and it's not that these doctors were bad people for not asking her this question. There weren't bad doctors. But in a high pressure, high stress, very busy environment, it's very easy to get focused on this patient has this problem. We can fix this problem in this way. And when a patient doesn't, trust us and therefore becomes quote unquote non compliant we get frustrated and so i think it was a systemic issue that led to this to this problem and it was taking that pause it was asking a better question of the situation that helped the team work through it
2: Nicole and Enzo what would you like to add to that picture
0: We have to remember that the doctor patient thing is a relationship. It's a doctor-patient relationship. And trust is essential to that relationship. And trust is essential to community, to equality, to health. The doctor-patient relationship is asking the patient to rely on another person. It's asking that patient to trust that the doctor is giving them the right drugs, that the doctor is going to be, you know, confident and trustworthy in surgery, and in anesthesia, in, in a diagnosis, that trust is necessary in whether or not the patient is going to be honest and open in telling you know all of the things about their medical condition. That trust is going to be necessary in whether the patient comes back, whether that patient is going to follow the doctor's instructions. So trust is an essential part of effective care. When I was a geriatric social worker, I had a client, and this was the whole reason that I even entered bioethics, the whole reason that I, I decided to study it, who I went to her house on a completely unrelated issue. I was going there to, to help sign her up for some sort of food benefit or something like that. But anyway, I, I get into her house. She was an older client. And she's sitting on her couch and on her coffee table is a stack of papers and I asked her what they were. And she said, well, I'm, I'm having surgery tomorrow, and I'm not really sure what it's for, and I'm not really sure what these papers say. And so I sat down with her, and I said, well, I want to go over these with you. And you know, after a while, she admitted to me that she didn't tell her doctor or anyone in the office that she didn't know how to read. And she was ashamed of that. And she didn't want to admit it, but there was her signature on, you know, all these informed consent papers, but she didn't know what the instructions were for the surgery, which could have been deadly. And there I was, you know, completely random that I was even coming into her life, not in any way related for this, to this surgery. And I went through it with her, but that's exactly the kind of thing where, you know, had she felt more comfortable Had she felt not judged in that situation to say, you know, I need a little bit more time understanding this, I need help with these forms, it would have been a much different situation. So positive health outcomes are going to be associated with trust. Will the patient follow directions? Will the patient come back? Will the patient admit to being food insecure? Will the patient admit to using substances? Will the patient, you know, talk about things like intimate partner violence? These are all really, really important but very sensitive topics that without a trusting relationship with the physician, it's not going to be a safe space to to discuss those sorts of things.
2: It can occur the other way around too, right? For caregivers to be distrustful of patients. I'm thinking of examples like the frequency that some patients come into the emergency department or how patients might dismiss their care plans or diagnosis or challenges around patient intravenous drug use or addictions. Is that part of the scope of work as well?
1: So I think that's a really good question, and I think that that is very much part of of what we're talking about. When there's a big cultural difference between patients and clinicians or researchers and their participants, it makes it much harder for the two parties to understand each other, to empathize with each other, and to have sort of a rich understanding of of what each other's lives are like. And so this leads to miscommunication and lack of trust and lack of empathy on both sides. And situations like that can really escalate quickly. Kevin, you gave some good examples of, you know, calling people frequent flyers or calling people drug seeking or calling people noncompliant. These are all terms that people who work in hospitals will know very well. And they're terms used to label people who, you know, the clinicians have decided just don't really care about their health. And you know, one of the fundamental principles of, of and what we start with in urban bioethics is we are going to start with the assumption that everybody wants to be healthy. Because if we think about it for a second, of course they do, right? Nobody likes being sick. Nobody wants to be in a hospital. Nobody likes to have their life interrupted, their job interrupted, their family interrupted to lose people. And so if we start from the assumption that everybody wants to be healthy, and then we do a better job of trying to learn about each other's lives and each other's experience, we can start to notice that those behaviors that we're labeling as, you know, they're noncompliant, they just don't care, it's so frustrating that pa- patients care less about their health than I do, we can start to recognize that those behaviors are not actually sending, those those signals that we're getting are not the right signals, that there's actually deeper other things going on. So I'll give you just one example, and this is a story that's not mine, but I've been given permission to tell it. This is our boss and the director of our center, Dr. Kathy Reeves's story. So Kathy was at one point. She's a pediatrician, and she was an attending in an urban hospital, uh, urban teaching hospital. And she had the she had a resident with her, so she had the resident see this patient first. And this patient was an infant who was brought in by his grandfather, who was his primary caretaker. And the infant had a fever. And I'm not myself a doctor, but every pediatrician will tell you that when an infant has a fever you have to do three things and you have to do them quickly. You have to take a urine sample, you have to take blood. And unfortunately for the infant, you also have to take a spinal tap. And so the resident explained this to the grandfather, I need these three things. And grandpa said yes to the urine, yes to the blood, but no way to the spinal tap. And because of the sort of set of assumptions that the resident was making about the grandfather, things escalated really quickly. You can imagine where this conversation went. The resident said, I can't have you leave the hospital until we can do a spinal tap on this infant. And grandpa said, no way. And, you know, the resident just get, got more and more frustrated and more and more angry. This is the standard of care. This is what I have to do. You're, you're going to have to leave against medical advice if you don't do this. And then eventually escalating to the, the point it always gets to in these conversations that get heated, which is I may have to call Child Protective Services. So there's an assumption built in there that grandpa doesn't care about this infant child's his grandson's health. And of course, that's not actually what's going on, right? So when Dr. Reeves gets involved and comes into the room, the attending, she asks the question that of course should have been the first question out of the resident's mouth, which is why? So one of the things that we'll talk about in the rest of this podcast, I think, about what's one important and really critical way to start to build trust is to foster curiosity and to ask that question of why. Because when Again, two parties are so different from each other in terms of their lives, their experiences, their histories, their trauma. It's really hard to miss what's actually going on unless you ask those questions, unless you get curious. So when Dr. Reeves asked the question, why? Grandpa says, because I don't believe that you're going to take fluid out of my grandson's spine. I believe that you're going to inject something into him. And and so once the doctors can start to understand where this fear comes from, they can actually start to work together to try to fix it. And so it brings us back to one of those fundamental principles of urban bioethics, which is how to foster not just autonomy, but how to foster agency. So how can we make sure that grandpa not only has a legal right to the autonomy of of his decisions and the decisions he makes for his grandson, but also that he can truly see all his choices and that together with the doctors, they can make a choice that's right for the whole family. And so when they start to have that conversation Dr. Reeves offers, well, maybe it'd make you feel better if you could be in the room while the spinal tap was taking place. You can put a gown on, you can put a mask on, and you can actually watch us take the fluid out of your grandson's spine. And you know, she asked grandpa, would that make you feel better? And he said, yes, tremendously. And so now this situation that really was born out of miscommunication, lack of empathy, lack of understanding, lack of trust again, sort of ended in a good way because of the pivot to just learning more about each other and and fostering that curiosity.
2: So you just talked about an approach that could work in fostering a patient's agency. As you've tested different ways to build trust, what's working, what's not?
1: One of the things that we've found that works is to actually try to foster that curiosity, but unfortunately, we're not all Dr. Reeves and we can't be in every provider's room and every doctor's office and every research decision that's made at all times. And so a big thing that we try to do is we try to foster that curiosity in education. We're lucky enough to have a captive audience of of medical students early in their medical career before they go off to be providers. And it's during that time that we can encourage them to start to think about these things in a different way. And part of what we try to tell them is that sometimes you need a base of understanding, some kind of window into a person's life and, and how they've lived and what kinds of communities they come from and what what their history is in order to spark that beginning to foster curiosity. So the more that your patience and the community that you serve is different from your life experience the harder it's going to be to know the right questions to ask. And that's really one of the fundamental barriers to trust is just a real lack of understanding and empathy between two groups. So one of the ways that we do this in our education is through something called service learning, which is a mandatory piece of our medical education where we ask our medical students to actually go out into the community and be a part of not just service not just volunteering but it's a it's a dual experience of of serving and helping but also of of learning and seeing how people live seeing how their future patients live and one of the things that we work really hard on in service learning is the balance between giving back to the community and and working on that educational mission. And one thing that we don't do is we don't shield our students from the real stuff that's going on in the community. So we don't make these sort of pretty experiences for them necessarily. We make it very clear that our our priority is to respond to community needs first and foremost. And, you know, when, when two things are in conflict and we can either help, we can either do something that's right for the community or we can prioritize our educational mission, we always prioritize the community. First, and so what we do is we let our students in on that process to sort of see a little bit how the sausage is made. So, if we need to delay our service learning start because the schools aren't ready, the schools aren't ready to have an after-school program, they aren't ready to have volunteers in yet, we don't force it. So we we pause and we have more conversations with the schools about what is right, and then we we tell the students that that's what's going on because the educational mission is not more important than avoiding doing harm to the community and further damage to the university's reputation in the community. And so what happens then is that the students get a real insight into something. So rather than making assumptions about why a school wouldn't be ready to start an after-school program on day one of school in September, they actually get to get curious about what's going on. What do these kids experience every day? You know, they get to reflect on their own experiences in school and think about whether there were any programs for them that didn't start on time or any disorganization or any lack of resources or lack of funds and get to notice the big difference between their experience and the experience of the patients that they're serving. And so now when they become clinicians and whether they treat children or they treat adults, they're going to have a lot more context for maybe you know, what what kinds of different school experiences are. And they can ask more questions. They can ask more questions like, you know, is there a school nurse? It wouldn't maybe have occurred to them before to ask that question because in the schools they grew up in, of course there was a school nurse, but here maybe there isn't, right? So if I am treating a child for asthma and I give him an inhaler, is he going to have a school nurse to help him administer it when he needs it? If I tell this kid to drink more water and to eat more fruits and vegetables, now I understand a little bit more about how that might be difficult. I've been in the schools and I've seen now that the schools actually have signs on the water fountains that say, don't drink the water, there's lead in it. And so now I understand a little bit better that if I'm going to ask a kid to drink more water, I better help him come up with a solution to get that water because I know he can't get it in the eight hours a day that he's in school or the six hours a day he's in school. So... What we really think is that letting students in on this experience and beginning to foster the beginning of that curiosity is going to help them become immensely better clinicians that are more prepared to deal with the lack of trust and the lack of understanding between them and their patient.
2: One option is to directly educate clinicians in the service learning examples that you have offered. Do you offer initiatives that directly educate or intervene in the community?
0: Yeah, we do. So, you know, one example is we are in a food desert here in North Philadelphia. And really, actually, I think more accurately, we're in a food swamp. So we really don't have a lot of healthy food options, but we're loaded with corner stores and we're loaded with unhealthy food options. So a doctor or a PA can't say to a patient with uncontrolled blood sugars, you know, go eat healthier, you know, go to Whole Foods, go to Trader Joe's and just eat healthier. That is not a good solution because here that's very difficult. So a program that we helped to start is called Farm to Families. And doctors and PAs can actually write scripts for patients to go and get big boxes of healthy fruits and vegetables from local farms in Lancaster. So just as they would go fill a script, they pay their, you know, their, their $5 copay and they go and get a big box of fruits and vegetables. Patients can also, and community members, they don't even need to be patients. They can just come to the hospital on Thursdays where they're every day, every Thursday from 10 to three in the hospital lobby at at Temple uh, University Hospital. They can come in and have access to to any fruits and vegetables that they want to purchase at very, very low cost. So that's a way where we're saying people do want to be healthy. People want to eat healthier. And there's a big impediment as far as like getting access to those foods. So we're bringing them in here. And we've seen a lot of people say you know they've enjoyed getting the, this food they've they're eating healthier they're losing weight and it's a way for community members to feel much more empowered to have access to that food at a much lower
2: cost i would like to ask each of you what do you find most attractive with this lens of urban bioethics how does it impact you
3: when i'm talking to any group of professionals or students if they remember nothing else other than this one thing, I'm happy. And that it relates to this idea of, you know, what can we do? These problems, systemic racism, health disparities are so monumental. And it seems a little bit pithy to say that awareness is the first and most important step. But I think that is really true. And if the example that I give is many of us when we talk about the Tuskegee study, we will say it was discovered in 1972 with the publication of an article about it in the New York Times, you know th- this incredibly l- long study of untreated syphilis despite the invention of penicillin. But it was not discovered. In fact, it was never hidden. In 1956, the Journal of Chronic Diseases published a paper with the subtitle, 22 Years of Observation of Untreated Syphilis. And in 1964, the Archives of Internal Medicine published a study reporting on the 30th year of observation. So this was never hidden. And I I think it relates to some of the things we've been talking about, that bias and racism, these things aren't hidden, but we often just don't talk about them or acknowledge them. There's one example of somebody at the time that Wrote a letter to the editor to the annals or the archives of internal medicine saying, you know, I'm utterly astounded by the fact that physicians allow patients with potentially fatal disease to remain untreated while effective therapy is available. I assume you feel the information which is extracted from observation of this untreated group is worth their sacrifice. If this is the case, then I suggest the U.S. public health service that was the sponsor and conductor of this Tuskegee study. And those physicians associated with it need to reevaluate their moral judgments in this regard. The journal published that letter, but no response to it. And that was it. There's another gentleman, Bill Jenkins, who just died recently. He was somebody at the time, uh, an epidemiologist, who had seen these reports and these studies and had brought him to the attention of his supervisor. He was a young, I think it was a graduate student or a postdoc at the time, and he was told. Don't worry about it. That's the US Public Health Service. They know what they're doing. And after it came out in 1972 widely and publicly in the New York Times as opposed to just a medical journal, Bill Jenkins changed his whole career trajectory because he he realized that he would have liked to have done more and he wanted to help educate others so that others would not feel the same way he did and withdraw when they had their concerns. And so I think urban bioethics and this sort of approach to our field should give people enough of a foundation, not just to recognize a wrong, but to be able to argue for why it's wrong. And that idea that if we can raise awareness of these issues, that more people will feel their own agency bolstered enough to realize there's a community of people who will help them argue against these types of unethical abuses as they happen today.
2: Nicole, what's attractive to you about the urban bioethics lens?
1: If you're in bioethics, it's it's impossible that you've never done one of those allocation case studies with kids, with undergrads. At some point in your in your bioethics career, you've thought about and talked about the question of if there's a town and a flu is ravaging it and there's 10 people in the town, but we only have six vaccines, who are we gonna save? It's such a common, you know, almost like a trope of, of, of bioethics and the kinds of things we think about. And I was tasked to teach a bioethics class to 11-year-olds from North Philly. All of them were black or Latinx. They had all experienced trauma, violence. Many of them had fathers who were in prison So a a traumatized group of eleven-year-olds who, nonetheless, were really excited to learn about bioethics. And so I decided to do that pandemic example with them and have them have a debate about who of these ten people in the town they would save. And you know the people in the town are there's a there's a two-year-old, but there's also a ninety-year-old. There's a doctor and a nurse. There's a teacher. You know you sort of assign people different social roles and different ages, and you have them debate about whether it's smarter to save the younger people or the older people, et cetera, and The bioethicists or people who are even tangentially related to bioethics who are hearing this podcast, who've done this before, probably every time you've done it, the group of people in front of you wants to save the doctor. Of course they want to save the doctor. The doctor's often the first person they think of to save because we've got to get the vaccine to the doctor so that he can help continue to save other people and help keep the town healthy. In this group of these 11-year-olds, that's not what they said. In fact, the doctor was one of the first people they wanted to make sure I knew they did not want to save. And as someone who works in bioethics and has been thinking about these questions for years and in a field where we talk about Tuskegee constantly, it was still quite shocking to have 11-year-old kids tell me they didn't want to save a doctor because they didn't trust him because they weren't sure what he was going to do because they were afraid that he was going to hoard those vaccines and only give them to the people he liked. And sketchy was the word that they kept using. You know, I really think that in bioethics, we can talk about Tuskegee all day long. We can write about it. We can write about mistrust. We can write about health disparities. But if we don't confront that urgent question, if we don't teach bioethics to those 11-year-olds and watch their visceral reaction, their deep mistrust that they have of doctors and of the medical institution then we're really missing the point. We're having two separate conversations because this isn't just the impact of Tuskegee on the African-American community. It's their families. It's these young 11-year-olds and their families telling them for years and showing them over and over that people who wear white coats, people who work in big, tall buildings that drive in and out to do a job, people who are, who are white, frankly, they don't have our backs they're not here for us and the message gets seeped into their communities that they shouldn't they shouldn't trust us and i find much like what nora said i find that traditional bioethics doesn't do a good enough job really confronting this question and thinking about structural racism and urban bioethics does do that and so that's that's why that's the kind of bioethics i want
2: to be a part of and so your thoughts
0: it's very practical. So, you know, like I said, I got drawn into urban, or I just drawn into bioethics because of the, the story of the woman I told you about when, you know, I realized that she had that stack of papers and she was getting, you know, surgery the next day. I immediately knew that I wanted to pair my social work degree with bioethics. And ultimately that's what led me to law school as well. You know, I was working with an older adult population and I wanted to be a better resource for them. And I wanted to better understand the impediments and the policies that were, that I was dealing with every day in the field. But we can't just sort of sit in our academic medical institutions and think about autonomy and think about what that looks like. That, to me, is not satisfying. I want to know that we're, you know, that I guess that's the social worker in me. I want to know that we're directly affecting people now. And not that we're just doing research or we're thinking about things that will affect a generation later. I want to know that we're affecting community members now, that we're responding to needs now. And so I think something that urban bioethics does well is that we don't respond to hypothetical needs. And that's a really big problem in general, where we look out and we say, well, I think this is what the community needs. And then we react to that. We actually ask and we involve community members and say, what do you need? And that informs our decisions for service learning. And that informs what programs we get involved in. And so we're actually, you know, putting our resources in community, into community problems where people are actually saying they need
2: it. As we close, any last comments?
0: Yeah, I mean,
1: just the last thing I'll say is that we have to recognize that the most unhealthy people in our country literally live in the shadow of the most prestigious, high-tech academic medical centers some of the biggest health disparities are present right right under the tall buildings where all of this amazing research and all of this uh, new brand new cancer care and all of this stuff takes place and you know our current system of of ethics and our regulatory framework it's it's set up to make sure that we don't do those horrible things that we did in the past again But I don't think that's good enough. Our our current regulatory and ethical structure focuses on preventing future harms and future breaches and trust, but it doesn't do anything to address the gap. It doesn't do anything to direct its attention, to direct our attention and our focus to that absurd and egregious disparity that's right outside our windows. And so that's, I think, what we really need to turn to. We need to stop publishing research over and over and over again that shows us how bad these disparities are. There's a ton of research taking place that shows us that, you know, Black women suffer from maternal mortality and morbidity at rates between four and ten times white women, that pain is treated differently, that heart attacks are treated differently over and over, study after study to show us the disparities. But we have to stop doing that research and actually move into a space where we start to do something about it. We have to start designing interventions. We have to start moving out of our four walls of, of academia and into communities. We have to start actually thinking innovatively and thinking outside the box about how to close those gaps. And you know, I just think if we imagined a world where the people who lived in the shadow of urban medical centers were the healthiest people in our society and in our country, we'd be looking at a lot different world.
2: Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keith Line. Thanks for listening.
2: Join us again.
0: Yeah.